Well, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 3, is where we'll be this morning as we continue on in this short little expose of the book of Ruth. did want to share something with you that was a huge encouragement to me, and I think it will be to you as well. Last week, I was preaching a conference in Rhinelander, Wisconsin, 13 hours from here, and a young man showed up to the conference on Sunday morning, and he had no idea that I was the speaker for the conference, um, but he was there, and he saw me, and he said to me, he said, I listen to your sermons on Sermon Audio. He said, I follow Christ Fellowship's pulpit on Sermon Audio, and he started telling me about sermons that were preached here at this church months ago, and I think I thought, yeah, I think I remember that sermon. Uh, and uh, it was hugely encouraging, because sometimes I think, well... Here we are, a little church in Paris, Tennessee, um, but through the means that God has given us, technology and other things, I mean, there's somebody 13 hours away that listens in. So Jacob, if you tune into this sermon on Sermon Audio, may it be a blessing to you as well. It makes me mindful um, and accountable that I, I, there are people out there listening. So um, may the Lord help us as we preach this difficult chapter this morning in Ruth chapter 3 to do justice to the Word of God. I've titled this message, The Motivation of Providence, because Ruth 3 explores the relationship between God's providence and our attitude and practical disposition. If we believe that God is against us, that He is not and will not bless us, then we have no motivation to do anything for His service and His glory. But when God begins to reveal His kindness to us, that He is in fact for us and does purpose to bless us, and we see that in our lives, then we are motivated to actively seek His blessings and follow His will. That's what we've seen happening in the life of Naomi. Naomi in chapter 1, depressed, distraught, discouraged, She was convinced that the Lord was against her. And when you're convinced that the Lord is against you, you have no hope. Naomi had no hope. But what happened in chapter 2? Through God's providence in her life, she began to see that the Lord was working in her life, and it encouraged her, and it motivated her. And we see that revival that took place And I want to go a little deeper with that thought because I don't want you to think that, well, Naomi was upset because bad things were happening to her, but then good things started happening to her and now she's encouraged. No, it's more than that. She began to see God. That was what encouraged her. God encouraged her, not just the things that happened to her. Because you can still be going through trials and tribulations. You can still be going through hard times. But when you see God in the midst of it, you find that motivation and encouragement. Don't think that you're hopeless and you're stuck in trouble and tribulation until good things begin to happen again. No, but in hard times, look for the hand of God. And we've said in this series a couple of times, when you cannot see the hand of God, you can trust the heart of God. The providence of God then should never be studied as an esoteric element of systematic theology with no practical bearing on your life. I did not preach through the book of Ruth, I'm not preaching through the book of Ruth, to prove to you the doctrine of the providence of God. I think there's a place for that, but we all believe in the providence of God. At this church, we believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe in that. The question is not, is God sovereign or is God providential, but do you love His sovereignty? It's one thing to say, oh, I believe God is in control. I believe He's sovereign over all things. I believe He has a providence. But do you love His providence? Or, because Naomi believed in the providence of God. But what, in chapter 1, she didn't love it. She lamented it. So this morning, do you love the providence of God? Can you say, God is ordaining all things in my life, the good and the bad and everything else, And even though some of it is confusing and some of it is painful and some of it is hard, I know he's working all things for my good and I love it. Bring it on. Bring it on. Bring on the difficulties and the pain and the suffering. 
Because in that, God is working out blessing and glory in my life. And Naomi is an, an example of that. We see the change that happens to her. And here in chapter 3, we, we will see Naomi strategizing and planning and looking forward to the future. What, what happened? What caused this dramatic change in Naomi's disposition? What happened was that she began to rightly perceive the providence of God. She began to love it. She began to embrace it. In chapter 2, the goodness of God shined so brightly that even Naomi saw it. Her mourning turned into rejoicing. She went from saying, The Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me, to saying, God hath not left off His kindness to the living and to the dead. The manifestation of God's providence in chapter 2 became the motivation for action in chapter 3. And we learn from this that we need hope. We need it. Hope is not just something that it's really nice to have it, but even if you don't, you just got to push on in the power of your own flesh. No, you need hope. You need hope in the Christian life. It's an essential part of the Christian life. The psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. If you don't have hope in God, you will not praise Him and you will not serve Him. You have to have hope. If you find yourself discouraged and frustrated with no prospect of a brighter tomorrow, could it be that like Naomi, your focus is all upon your circumstances and not the God of the circumstances? May you begin to see God moving in your life, working out His good purposes. May your soul be revived. May your heart be motivated to once again live for the Lord. Chapter 3 shows us what happens when God's people are filled with hope in the sovereign goodness of God and see Him working in their lives. So let's read chapter 3 together and then let's consider what the Lord uh, has for us here. Ruth 3, beginning in verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And now is not Boaz of our kindred? with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash thyself therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and get thee down to the floor, but make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet, and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. She said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me, I will do. And she went down unto the floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn, and she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid her down. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself. Behold, a woman lay at his feet, and he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as thou followest not young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requirest, for all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. And now it is true that I am thy near kinsman, howbeit... There is a kinsman nearer than I. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman's part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then I will do the part of a kinsman to thee. As the Lord liveth, lie down until the morning. She lay at his feet until the morning, and she rose up before one could know another. And he said, Let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. Also, he said, bring the veil that thou hast upon thee and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. And she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done to her. And she said, These six measures of barley gave he me. For he said to me, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. 
Then said she, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall, for the man will not be in rest until he hath finished the thing this day. Well, if you read Ruth chapter 3 and you scratch your head and you think to yourself, what in the world is going on here, then you are in good company. And I am the guy that chose to preach the book of Ruth. And so now I'm standing here and you're all looking at me thinking, what in the world is going on here? Uh, And I'm going to request with the Apostle Paul that you would bear with me a little in my folly. I do believe that God put this here for a reason. We know that. So there's something here for us. Uh, But what that is requires careful attention to the Word of God. It's an easy chapter to read into, and that's certainly not what I want to do. I just want to pull out the meaning and see if we can make some application to what is happening here in Ruth chapter 3. So there's a couple of things that I want us to look at and I want us to consider from Ruth 3. The first is this. I want you to see the strategic plan. The strategic plan. Ruth 3. Beginning in verse 1, you'll remember at the end of chapter 2 that Ruth came home with a 30-pound sack of barley and presented it to Naomi. At the time, Naomi was still pretty down in the dumps, right? Because really, the book of Ruth is a series of setbacks. Chapter 1, we we know what the setback is there with the misery that Naomi underwent. Chapter 2, the light begins to shine and some good things begin to happen. Uh, But as Ruth begins to develop this relationship with Boaz... He's kind to her, and he's friendly to her. Boaz knows that he's her kinsman redeemer. Ruth does not know that he's her kinsman redeemer, and Boaz makes no advancement. So Ruth comes home and tells Naomi everything that had happened. Naomi's encouraged, but still it's kind of like, why did Boaz not initiate? Why did he not say, by the way, Ruth, I'm your kinsman redeemer? No, he he didn't say that, so... What we find in chapter 3 is Naomi and Ruth devising this plan to overcome the setback of Boaz, not initiating in chapter 2. Naomi was down in the dumps when Ruth was coming home, but when she saw that sack of barley, she said, Where on earth did you go and glean today? Ruth tells her that she had gleaned in Boaz's field, and all of a sudden the lights turned on, The wheels started spinning in Naomi's mind, and Naomi rejoices. Uh, Something ever happened to you that was so remarkable that you thought, this has to be God? There's no way that just happened? Now, we know that all things are ordained of God, but there are some things that are so remarkable and so unique that we just know, Lord, you are telling me something through this. You are leading me through this. That's what happened in chapter 2. We don't always know what the Lord is doing, but we know he's doing something. And that motivates us. It encourages us. It makes us wonder, Lord, you did this for a reason. I don't know what the reason is, but help me to be mindful and to be on the lookout so that I can see why you're doing this. Well, that was Naomi when she found out that Ruth had gleaned in Boaz's field. With this inclination of God at work in her life, Naomi gets to work as well. Now, some commentators on chapter 3 will accuse Naomi of acting harshly or acting rashly and uh, not being patient and waiting on the Lord. And they'll say she should have never devised this foolish plan. Well, before we get too hard on Naomi... I think the amazing thing that should stand out to us is that this woman has a plan. Because just two chapters ago, this same woman had given up. This hopeless, destitute woman who lost her husband, both of her sons, lost a daughter-in-law, lost all of her respect in society. She finally has hope of future blessings. That's what stands out to me in this chapter as we're reading along. Here's Naomi. She's plotting. She's planning. She's seeking out the will of the Lord. This is a new Naomi. People who are consumed with self-pity 
And people who feel like victims don't make plans. They just give up. And they wallow around in their own pity party. But those who see that, yes, there are obstacles and there are hardships, but there is also a sovereign God working for their good, those people will plan and plot and have a desire to follow after the will of God as he reveals it to them. And that's what we see in the life of Naomi here. So Naomi asks Ruth in chapter uh, 3 and verse 1, she says, Shall I not seek rest for you? Rest is a uh, reference to marriage. Rest. Uh, rest from your days as a gleaner. Rest as the wife of a husband who will provide for you. Shall I not seek rest for you? Contrast that with the, with the argument that Naomi gave in chapter 1. What did Naomi tell Ruth in chapter 1? She told her that if she came back to Bethlehem, well, there was no one for you to marry, Ruth. And now she's saying to her, boy, don't you think it's time I find you a husband? Naomi has had a complete turnaround in her mindset. What the realization of God can do in your life, it is amazing when we see Him working in our lives, how much hope and motivation that can put within us. And then she follows this question in verse 2 with another one, and she says, And isn't Boaz our kinsman, Redeemer? Isn't Boaz our kinsman? It's kind of like something a mom might say to her daughter. Uh, you know, don't you think it's time that you start looking for a husband? And then she asks that because she's already had someone in mind, and so she says, well, what about so-and-so? He seems like a nice guy. We see the gears turning in Naomi's mind. We see this plan being formed. She wants to secure a godly husband for Ruth, and Boaz is the logical and providential candidate. However... <laughs> The plan that she surmises to accomplish this goal is nothing short of bizarre, especially for us modern 21st century readers. We're reading this plan, and we are wondering what in the world is going on here. So let's look at the details of this plan in verses 3 and 4. It's the barley harvest, right? So Boaz is working in the field, and Naomi tells Ruth, go and take a shower, Spray on your best perfume. Put on your nicest outfit. I mean, get, get looking nice. And then after Boaz is done working, when he lies down to sleep, she tells Ruth to go to where he is, alone at night in a barley field, and uncover his feet, and lay down at his feet. And Ruth, when you do that, Boaz will tell you what to do next. I mean course right i mean that's the uh, what else would she do moms please don't give your daughters that kind of courtship (laughs) advice when they're seeking out a husband they will be labeled as a weirdo (laughs) and you don't want that for your daughter so that makes us ask because it's so odd there's got to be something going on here and i think there's some indicators that there is something deeper going on here The main indicator comes from Ruth's response because Ruth does not respond the way we respond. We respond by scratching our heads and saying, what is happening? But Ruth just says in verse 5, all right, I'll do it. Everything you say to me, I'll do it. Ruth did not say, why on earth are you having me do this? So obviously there's something that they're understanding that we're not understanding. And it could be that there are some cultural elements here that were unique to that time period, but there's no cultural tradition that we know of that ex- uh, exactly resembles these strange instructions. We don't know of anything in the Bible or in history that would resemble this. If Naomi wanted Ruth to approach Boaz about marrying her, why not just send her to have a conversation with him in the field the next day while she's working? She could just go up to him and say, Boaz, um, you know, you're my kinsman and I know that now. Let's talk about this, see what we can do. Why does she have her approach him alone at night, dressed in her best attire, and lay down at his uncovered feet. This aspect of the narrative remains somewhat of a mystery, and I don't even know that God intends for us to fully understand every detail about this narrative. So I want to be careful. I'm not going to try to uh, uncover every little stone here. But I do think that we have somewhat of an insight of the broader Uh, scheme of this narrative 
And we see that in Ruth's answer. That's the strategic plan. But look secondly with me at the surrendered trust in verses 6 through 9. Ruth says in verse 5, All that you say to me, I will do. Ruth trusts Naomi. She trusts the plan. And she trusts the providence of God. So in verses 6 through 8, we see that Ruth does everything according to this plan. The text paints this picture for us. It's midnight in Bethlehem. And the stars are out. And there's Boaz sleeping on the barley floor. Why was he sleeping on the barley floor? Why, why did he not go home and sleep in his own bed? We don't know. But that's what happened. <laughs> so Boaz is sleeping in the field. And he's startled awake by a woman laying at his feet. Now Naomi said, he'll tell you what to do. But that's not at first what he says. At first what he says is, who are you? which is a very logical question for a man to ask that's startled awake by a woman sleeping at his feet. If, if that happened to me, feller, if that happened to you, if it's not your wife, I mean, even if it is your wife, you'd be, what, who, what are you doing laying at my feet? Boaz asks this question, and the answer that Ruth gives in verse 9 is the best key that we have to understanding what's going on. She answers Boaz, with a request and a reason. Notice in verse 9, she says, Spread your skirt over me, for you are my kinsman redeemer. So the request is, spread your skirt over me. Why would you do that? Because you are my kinsman redeemer. By saying to Boaz, you are my near kinsman, Ruth was implying that she wanted him to fulfill the responsibilities of her near kinsman, namely becoming her husband. So this is a marriage proposal. That's what this is. But again, why in such an odd way? The answer lies in her request that Boaz would spread his skirt over her. The word here for skirts differs among the English translations. Some versions have it as skirt or garment or robe or covering. Some versions, I think the ESV translates it as wing. Spread your wing over me. Uh, the word is used throughout the Old Testament and almost always means wing, except for a few places like verse 9 where it does refer to a physical covering. It's one of those instances, we have it in the Old Testament, we have it in the New Testament, where there's a word in Hebrew or a word in Greek, and there's no one English word that fully uh, translates in every situation. So what we do is we, we look at it and we see that word and then we try to use the context to figure out which English word suits it in this case. So I'm not suggesting that skirt is a, is a wrong translation. It's a perfectly good translation. It's just a little bit more obscure uh, because we don't see the fullness of that word just in the one word skirt. Because in verse 9, Naomi is, or Ruth is referring to a literal physical garment, a skirt. But that skirt carries with it great significance. The word is the same word that Boaz used in chapter 2 in verse 12 when he said to Ruth, Ruth, you have come to take refuge under the wings of God. You have come to trust under God's wing. Same word. What Ruth is saying to Boaz is this, Boaz, what God has done for me, I want you to do for me. God has spread his skirt over me. God has taken me in. God has used you to give me grace. I want you to do that. Just as I've come to take refuge under God's wings, I want to take refuge under your wings also. Ruth proposes to Boaz in this strange way to draw out this parallel that started in verse 12 of chapter 2. Chapter 2 Ruth asks Boaz, why have I found grace? Why have you been so gracious to me? And Boaz answered her by saying that God was the one who had been gracious to her. Do you remember that? And he answers with that little bit of misdirection. Why have I found grace in your eyes? And then Boaz says, the Lord recompense you and reward you. Boaz was simply the instrument that God used to administer his goodness to Ruth. Essentially then, when Ruth came to Boaz, she came to God, because it's God's will for her to be with Boaz. And she's recognizing that. Boaz said that to her in a very subtle way, 
Ruth responded in subtlety, and now we finally have some clarity. The message Boaz wanted to communicate to Ruth in chapter 2 was that she had come to his field because it was God's will for them to be together. Why have I been led to this field? Why have I found grace in your eyes? Why have you been so good to me? Because this is God's will for your life. This is how God is blessing you and restoring all that you lost in Moab. Ruth is not the only place where we find the analogy of taking refuge under someone's wings used of lovers. We find this in Ezekiel 16 in verse 8. God says to Israel, his beloved, When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord God. When Ruth lays at Boaz's feet and says to him, spread your wing over me, she is saying to him, I want to be the one with whom you make a covenant and pledge your faithfulness forever. And she does it in this way that seems so strange to us because that's how Boaz has communicated to her thus far. And you know, it's really not that far-fetched when we begin to look at it. What happens when a guy likes a girl? In most cases, what happens is he doesn't just come right out and say to her the minute he begins to realize he has an interest in her, uh, hey, I have an interest in you. No, what does he do? He begins to drop hints. He begins to do the things that Boaz did in chapter 2, where he provided protection for her, and he provided food for her, and he gave her barley, and he gave her uh, water for her thirst, and he spoke friendly to her, and he's dropping all of these subtle hints, and then Ruth is going home, and he's telling Naomi, because you know how... You know how um, a smitten woman is she she is thinking wow i have no idea why he's so nice to me he just must just be a generous man and so she's going home and she's telling naomi all of these things and naomi is saying duh don't you see what's happening here boaz is communicating to you that he's interested in you ruth but a moabitish damsel could not directly approach a wealthy man from israel and say Um, are you interested in me? She couldn't have done that. So what does Ruth do? Ruth has to respond in the same... Now I know you're thinking, well, laying at somebody's feet in the middle of the night is not quite all that subtle. But it is when that's how Boaz began this whole line of communication. So Ruth responds in the same subtlety, and then Boaz finally confirms openly when he says, fear not, fear not, I will do all that you require. Ruth was essentially asking Boaz, will you be the answer to your own prayer that the Lord would recompense my work and give me a full reward? Had Ruth just gone in the field and had this conversation with Boaz, we would have missed this beautiful exchange between a godly man and a godly woman who realize that the Lord is bringing them together, yet they have immense respect for one another's dignity. Beautiful picture of mutual respect for one another's dignity. And it gives us this picturesque unveiling of God's providence in their lives. Ruth displays the surrendered trust. She trusts in Naomi's direction, in Boaz's character and affection, and in the good providence of God. And then thirdly, I want you to see the sovereign pledge in verse 10. The sovereign pledge. Boaz replies first by confirming what was once veiled in subtlety. Again, that's why I'm saying to you, there's something deeper going on because Boaz does not find this strange. When, when Ruth says, spread your skirt over me for you're my near kinsman, Boaz knew exactly what she was doing, exactly what she was communicating. He acknowledges that he did indeed have his eyes on Ruth and he's glad that she didn't follow after one of the younger men. He says that to her in verse 10. Blessed be thou of the Lord, my daughter. Thou hast shown more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, inasmuch as you didn't follow after young men, whether poor or rich. And then in verse 11, he answers her proposal in the affirmative. Fear not, Ruth. You've obeyed God. You've submitted to your mother-in-law. You've been loving and kind to me. I will not send you away 
disappointed. Boaz pledges to do all that Ruth requires. Fulfill the obligations of her kinsman redeemer by marrying her, purchasing all that was Elimelech's, and raising up seed for him. Ruth asks Boaz, will you marry me? Boaz responds, would I? Would I? Because the whole city knew that she was a virtuous woman. That's what he says in verse 11. Her godliness was visible, and this godly man was attracted to it. Boaz uses language about Ruth that the narrator used about him. Also, we find in Boaz's pledge a very important practical lesson for men considering marriage. I want you to notice what Boaz says to Ruth in verse 11. I will do to thee all that thou requirest. Boaz understood that the privilege of the relationship came with the responsibility of providing for her needs. And the problem with the sort of recreational dating that is so common in our culture today is that it encourages people to pursue the privileges of a relationship without assuming any of the responsibilities. That's a serious problem. Serious problem. The biblical principle is that if you are not ready, spiritually, mentally, physically, for the responsibilities of marriage, then you're not ready to enjoy the privileges of marriage. Because marriage is so much more uh, than a a lovey-dovey love story. No, it's a real commitment to a real person with real responsibilities. Amen, somebody. Amen. Some of the married people ought to be saying, Amen! I know what he's talking about. Boaz understood that. Notice in this narrative, Boaz did not flirt with her emotions and play games with her heart without committing to care and provide for her. Boaz is an example of wisdom and maturity throughout this whole interaction. How easy, guys, is it for a man in Boaz's position to just... Because you know, you know how... what. What are we vulnerable to, man? We're vulnerable through our eyes, through the things that we see. What are our feminine counterparts most vulnerable to? The things that they hear. How easy it is for you to tell her everything she wants to hear and how you love her and no one else will love her the way you love her and you'll just live on love. No, you won't. You'll starve. You don't just need a man who says, I love you and I'll always love you. No, you need a man who says, I'll love you and I'll pay the bills. And that's what Boaz said. I'll do all that you require. All that you require. Buying your field. Raising up a son. Leading you. Assuming all of your debts. Assuming uh, your reputation. Assuming your baggage. Accepting you. I'll take it. I can handle it. I'm a man. That's what Boaz was saying. Boaz was not like the boys, and that's what they are, they're boys, who will readily tell a girl that he loves her and he cares for her and no one will ever love her more than he loves her, but when it comes time to commit and start making plans and start talking about putting a ring on it, well, I don't know if I'm ready for that. That's where the road to sin begins. Because you begin to develop these emotional attachments and you begin to invest yourself emotionally and physically with no plans of real commitment. If a man is not ready to care for a woman, he has no business promising her that he will. And if you really love her, you'll protect her heart. And you won't say things to her that lead her on until you're actually able to uphold your promises you really love her, and if you really want what's best for her, you won't put her in such a dangerous position. And ladies, you need to be aware of that. You need to be aware of empty promises. And you need to be aware of men who will say something to you and will not have the wherewithal or the intentions of backing it up. They have an ulterior motive. Be aware of that. Be aware of that. And if we're nowhere close to that, to that readiness, then we're really nowhere close to being ready 
for this type of relationship. Is that common or is that popular? What I, everything I just said, is that popular in today's day and age? Absolutely not. It goes against everything that pop culture wants to promote and wants to, you know, we, we hear songs on the radio, love at first sight, and I met this, I don't even know her last name, and I love her, and I'm going to be with her the rest of, no, that, that might be what pop culture is saying, but it's not what the Word of God is saying to you. Boaz got to know Ruth, examined her godliness, realized her character, and did not make a commitment until he knew that this was the Lord's will for him. And at that point, he made promises that he had every intention to fulfill. So it finally seems like everything is coming together. Ruth and Boaz have openly acknowledged their mutual desire for one another. Boaz has agreed to take her as his wife. All of us are getting very excited. We can hear the wedding bells ringing. And then another setback comes up in the narrative. And this time, the setback is caused by their own desire to be godly. Remember I said at the very beginning of this little mini-series, one of the lessons of the book of Ruth is this question. Is a life of integrity really worth it? That's what we see here in chapter 3. Sometimes doing the right thing will cost. Sometimes you will think, if I do the right thing, I won't get what I believe God is actually leading me to do. You have a desire. You know that it's a desire that the Lord has given you. You even know that God is in it. But doing it the right way might cost, might prevent it from happening, might slow down the process. Well, what am I talking about? Well, I want you to see the Savior proved. The Savior proved. Verse 12 through 18, because Boaz agrees to fulfill the part of a kinsman for Ruth, there's just one problem. There's someone else who's an even closer relative than Boaz, and by law, this other guy is the one who's actually first in line to redeem all that is Elimelech's. And the impressive thing about this is that it's Boaz who mentions him. Ruth was totally unaware of this guy. Naomi was totally unaware of this guy. Picture this. Ruth and Boaz are alone together under the midnight sky Ruth has just proposed. Boaz has just accepted that proposal. And despite how badly he wants to marry her, Boaz has the integrity to make sure that this marriage comes to fruition in a way that honors the word of God. This is astonishing integrity. So we live in a culture that lives by the maxim, if it feels good, do it. And to hell with all your puritanical principles that make me feel any kind of guilt. A man like Boaz would be ridiculed and mocked by our carnal and sensual culture. Can you imagine Boaz around the water cooler telling this story? Boaz would say, yep, I was laying there alone, and then this beautiful woman is sleeping at my feet. And all of his buddies would say, really? Then what happened? Well, then she said she wanted to marry me. you got to be kidding me. What, what did you do then, Boaz? I accepted Really? Well, tell me more. What happened? What happened, Boaz? Well, then I told her that there was actually someone else who had the right to marry her first, and I wasn't even going to touch her uh, until we made sure that our marriage was able to come about in a godly way. And they would say, you sissy, you wuss, you're not a real man. You're a coward. That's what the world would say to Boaz. But the world's definition of a man and God's definition of a man Two different things. Boaz prioritized godliness over his physical desires. Because Boaz loved Ruth. And if you really love her, the right thing to do is honor her and protect her until your marriage can be brought about in a way that God prescribes. That's what Boaz did for Ruth. And Boaz continues this response in verse 13. And he tells Ruth to tarry there the rest of the night and in the morning he would take the initiative and he would go and do everything to make this right. Boaz wanted his personal desires to be fulfilled in a way that honors God's word. If the other kinsman was willing to marry her, then so be it. So the question then becomes, 
is this worth it? Is this worth it? You're going to be faced with situations where you see the goal that you're trying to attain and you see what, you, what, what, what you're trying to do and what you believe even the Lord is leading you to do. And then ill-timed, inconvenient righteousness will come before you. And you will be forced to make the decision, am I going to do this the way God said, even if the way God said to do it doesn't seem like the easiest way or the way that gets me the quickest to what I want and desire, or am I going to ignore what God said and just go ahead and do it anyways? I want to say to you a thousand times yes, it is absolutely worth it. We'll see that before we get to the end of this book, but you are never making the wrong decision when you follow God's word. No matter what it might appear to cost, no matter what it might seem to ask of you or require of you, God is the rewarder of those who follow him. So Boaz tells Ruth to sleep there the rest of the night. In the morning he would go and he would find the other kinsmen. How could Boaz do this? How could he say, I mean, if, if, if you knew that there was this other guy that had the right to marry the woman that you loved and you wanted to marry, how could you be so calm and so, so collected about saying, let's just go find him and ask him? Boaz trusted in the providence of God. And Boaz knew if it was God's will for them to marry, they would marry. Boaz knew that and he believed that and he trusted in that. So verse 14, Boaz tells Ruth to return home discreetly so that her reputation isn't marred. Boaz wanted the sun to dawn on her purity. This isn't covering up sin because there was no sin. This is abstaining from all appearances of evil. He says, don't let anyone know you were here. Go home quietly to your mother-in-law. We'll take care of this. We'll do this God's way. It's another practical lesson for us. And that is this. Don't allow yourself to be placed in a compromising situation that would call your holiness into question. Don't do it. Don't do it. I don't care if you know, well, I've got accountability measures in place and I know that I've got standards set. Don't do it. If it's something that the world could look at and question your integrity, abstain from it. Be above reproach in all things. We could go off on a number of practical ways that that can be accomplished. Uh, But let me just give you one quick one. If she's not your wife, your mother, or your sister, don't be alone with her. Ever. If he's not your father, your husband, or your brother, don't be alone with him. That goes for singles, and that goes for married as well. Um, Because some Christians have this idea that, well, when you're single, you need to have these standards in place. But once you get married, well, everybody knows I'm, everybody knows Abigail's my wife. If they see me with another woman, I'm sure that they won't suspect anything ill of me. How stupid can we as the people of God be sometimes? Don't do anything that would call your holiness into question. Al Martin, the preacher in New Jersey, he was known for when he would travel and preach. And later, when his wife wasn't able to be with him, he would go to a hotel. And this was, of course, before the days of smartphones and all of that. He would take all of the electronics out of the hotel, the phone and the TV, and he would set it out front, just unplug it and put it out front, and the staff would say, what What are you doing? And Al Martin would say... I don't want to be tempted so that I might fall when I am here for the purpose of ministering the word of God and being a blessing to the people of God. I don't want to even allow the possibility of some image or some thought to pop into my mind that could cause me to fight a spiritual warfare this week when I'm supposed to be here to minister to the people of God. Uh, Am I telling you to adopt that as your practice? Maybe, Uh, but not necessarily. What I am telling you, though, is that you need to be mindful. You need to be mindful as Boaz was mindful here in Ruth 3, not to do anything that would call your holiness into question. Would onlookers observe your conduct as one who seeks to please the Lord in all things or as someone who puts themselves in questionable situations? Examine yourself. Boaz sends Ruth away 
but not before loading her down with more barley than she knew what to do with. Uh, In those days, of course, they would have worn a long veil. And Boaz says, take your veil, your outer veil, and spread it out. Kind of think of the, the image of a sheet. And spread it out, and Boaz loaded it down with barley, and twirled it around, and Ruth carried that home. And he, he tells us the reason why he did that, because Ruth will say to Naomi, he said to me, go not empty to thy mother-in-law. Boaz was sending that barley back to Naomi so that Boaz could say to her, Naomi, your plan worked. Your plan worked. So that's where chapter 3 leaves us. Hanging on another cliff, yet wondering how things will work out between Boaz and Ruth. But Naomi leaves us with words of encouragement. In verse 18, she says, Sit still, my daughter. Sometimes that's the hardest thing we can do when we're trying to follow the will of God is sit still. Quit trying to be a spiritual control freak and figure out everything and force something to happen and push something that may or may not be there. No, just sit still and wait on God because the man will not be in rest until he has finished the thing this day. One way or the other, Ruth, you're going to marry your kinsman redeemer. Let me close with some practical applications from this unusual chapter in the Bible. God has ordained these events in this way for a reason, and I believe that there are things, even in Ruth 3, that God wants us to learn. Number one, Things don't seem as strange when you're convinced that it's the will of God. This plan seems bizarre to us. It might have seemed bizarre to other women in that day. But when Ruth and Naomi were talking about everything that Boaz had done and how God had been leading them up until this point, this plan didn't seem so bizarre to them because they were convinced that it was the will of God. We ought to pay close attention to what God is doing in our lives the ways that He leads us, the ways that uh, He is communicating to us what His will is for us. And because in those ways, God motivates us, reveals His will, and then following Him doesn't seem so bizarre. Second, this episode in the story of Ruth and Boaz encourages us to guard our own purity. If anyone could have gotten a free pass, it would have been them. They had all the excuses. They really loved each other. They were both believers. They were planning on getting married anyways. How many times do we use that lie? Yet none of those excuses change the principles of the word of God. Intimacy is reserved for the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman. And this little story in Ruth 3 encourages us to pursue purity because we see how abundantly God blesses it. Ask Ruth and Boaz at the end of chapter 4 if they regretted maintaining their purity in chapter 3 in that barley field. Ask any Christian couple that went to the altar pure if they have any regrets. No, the only ones that have regrets are those who lose their purity. And so I urge you to be like Boaz and Ruth who waited until everything was right and godly. That's not just true for single Christians. It's true for married Christians as well. You want to maintain a marriage that's done in righteousness and godliness. You need to be satisfied in Christ first so that that satisfaction can then trickle down into that marriage. See, oftentimes... The, the, the discontentment that we think we have in our spouse, the frustration that we think we have in our spouse is actually the discontentment we have with God that we place on our spouse. Because we're not fully satisfied in God, and so we look to our spouse to fulfill us in a way that only God can, and our spouse can't do it, so we think that we're discontent with them when really what we need to do is we need to repent of our own sins and get right with God, and then that will solve a lot of our conflict in marriage. Ruth encourages us to pursue this type of purity. We see in 1 Corinthians 6 that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's those who are sexually immoral in marriage and out of marriage. But what does that chapter also tell us? It tells us that such were some of you. But you were washed, you were cleansed, 
And that's what Jesus does. He takes us who are immoral and he cleans us and he washes us. We can be virtuous by his grace. I'm thankful that God takes us from where we are, not where we should have been. So if you have committed sins before marriage, receive the grace and forgiveness and cleansing of Christ. If you've committed sins in marriage, receive the grace and forgiveness and cleansing in Christ. And thirdly, chapter 3 of the book of Ruth teaches us that the events of your life are part of a grander plan that redounds to the glory of God. God created you for His glory and His providence is at work to bring His glory to pass in your life and through your life. You are a stage upon which the glory of God manifests and goes forth. And if this is true, even though we oftentimes have no way of imagining just how true it is. When Ruth proposed Boaz, do you think either of them knew all that God was doing? Do you think that that they realized that he was bringing them into the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you think that they realized that because of their marriage, a thousand years later, in the very same town of Bethlehem, God would send his own son to be born of a virgin? Do you think that they realized all of that? No, they were just following God. They were just seeking to do God's will, seeking to obey His Word. They had no way of knowing all that God would do through them, but that's why Paul says that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to His power that works in us. And Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 3, to Him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. All generations includes Ruth's generations and it includes your generation. Never underestimate the value of obeying God and submitting to His providence. What if God is ordaining in your life in such a way that He can use you to glorify Himself long after you're gone? You may never live to see all that God will do through you, but you'll understand it in the ages to come as He reveals His kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. The world may think that your life For Christ, your life lived to serve God. They may think that that's odd or bizarre, but it doesn't matter because you're not living for the approval of the world. You're living to please God for His honor, for His glory. So may the providence of God likewise motivate you to live for Him because you never know how His providence might motivate you to be used for His ultimate glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for this unique chapter of the Word of God. I pray that you used something that was said today to encourage us and strengthen us. Uh, May your grace be with us uh, as we continue our service and uh, head to the waters of baptism. May you be pleased to glorify yourself there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.